All right, tonight's uh, Genesis lesson comes from uh, Genesis chapter 44 and a little bit of 45 as well. Uh, these Genesis uh, chunks, especially in the life of David, are big, and I, I know that you've noticed that, and hopefully uh, this doesn't weary you or wear you out, but I do think it's important to read the whole thing before we begin to talk about it. Uh, before I do, I, I want to give a quick review. So this section of Joseph's life is all about how Joseph and his brothers are finding reconciliation. Uh, remember, Joseph's brothers sin against him in a massive way by trying to kill him and then settling for selling him into slavery. Years later, they finally meet back together, and God has been working in the hearts, both of Joseph and of his brothers. And not only is Joseph forgiving them, but he's seeking reconciliation, which are different things. Uh, to forgive is a decision that the offended party makes, and the Bible says we are to do so as Christians every time. We are to endeavor with all our heart to forgive from the heart. Reconciliation is something that the offended party and the offending party must together make. Uh, it's a two-sided thing, and that's what's going on here. Joseph, we'll see tonight, has forgiven already, but he's working now with his brothers that they might be again in relationship, specifically a relationship of trust again which is a very hard thing to restore, as we all know, right? It's very hard to restore trust. And so let's look together. Um, I'm going to read the story, and then we'll talk through a few things. Then Joseph commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this time, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. And they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal, steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we will be my Lord's servants." He said, let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go in peace 
to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children. And his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our younger brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as you come to, my, to your servant my father, as soon as I come to your servant my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant our father with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood before him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. You think, right? <laughs> so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. 
And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. It's God's word and quite a story that we've been working on for a while now, and this is, the, this is the climax of it. This is where reconciliation actually happens between him and his brothers. And we want to see tonight there are three parts to the story and three parts to how reconciliation finally ends up happening. And it all has to do with the, the restoration of trust. So two weeks ago we saw that reconciliation begins with a conscience that comes alive. You have to know you did something wrong. And you have to know what you did, and you have to admit it. That's the first thing. Then last week we talked about repentance. Repentance has to go deep into your heart. You've got to be willing to actually stop doing what you're doing wrong and do something right. And then this week we're going to see you've got to be willing to prove that you are trustworthy again. And that's what Joseph does with his brothers and for his brothers. Three things tonight. First of all, there's a test that he puts to them. Secondly, there's a substitution that they offer. And then lastly, there is a restoration that Joseph works on, okay? So the test, the substitution, and the restoration. Let's look first of all at the test. Joseph puts a loyalty test in front of his brothers yet again in verses 1 to 17 of chapter 44. Uh, Anybody who's ever uh, worked out knows this. Uh, Resistance tests strength, right? Resistance also builds strength. And the greater the resistance, the greater the challenge, and the greater the potential benefit there is. If I just go up here and curl air, how's that, what's that going to do for me? Not as much as if I had a big barbell with lots of weight on it, and then I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm struggling, and I'm pushing myself beyond my normal capacities in order to build up my capacity to make it bigger. Well, think about last week, the very end of the dinner party that Joseph threw for the brothers. He put a little mini test in front of them. That mini test uh, was a test uh, about whether they would be jealous if he gave to their youngest brother, Benjamin, five times more than he gave to them. Remember that? And that, that was exactly the same temptation that they had way back in the day when they were tempted to sell Joseph. Joseph, remember, got the best stuff from his father. Clearly, he was favored, and instead of loving him, they sold him, right? And so Benjamin gets five times more at the table, and yet they don't envy him. Rather, they party. Remember, they got drunk together and with Joseph. That's where we ended last week. But think about that. That's relatively little resistance. That test was, hey, A, get mad at your little brother, or B, get drunk with me. Well, that's not hard to decide, right? Um, there's not a whole lot of resistance required. Um, it's a lot more fun to party than it is to bicker with your little brother. And so it may have been that their hearts really weren't all that changed. It may have been just they had a penchant for really fine food and really fine wine. And they threw themselves into it. This time, Joseph designs a test that has maximum resistance. He plants his silver cup in Benjamin's sack and then sends the police out, basically, Pharaoh's police, to arrest them and say, you know, whoever 
stole my silver cup. This is my special cup that I drink out of and the one that I practice divination, which means fortune telling with. Uh, not that Joseph probably really did practice fortune telling, but he's keeping up this act of Egyptian man, you know. Uh, they, they say, whoever did that deserves to be my servant forever, my slave. And then what happens next? They lower their sacks, dramatic. He's text the oldest, the second, the third, the fourth, all the way down to Benjamin, and finally, boom, the youngest one has the silver cup. Now, what's the test there? What's the resistance? Yeah, this is an easy opportunity, right? Uh, at the dinner table, it wasn't that hard to say, I'm not going to you know, yell at Benjamin because, hey, I've got a whole lot of food to eat. This time it was, I'm either going to sell Benjamin and save my own skin, or one of us is going to have to stand up and take it for Benjamin so that Benjamin can go back to his dad. That's resistance. That's a test of loyalty and a test of trustworthiness, really like no other. How do they fare? What do they prove? Yes, it's Judah. Okay, Judah comes forward as the great hero of these last chapters of the book of Genesis. Judah has been a completely reformed and changed man. And he says a couple different things. Uh, if you'll notice there, um, let me find it in the Bible. See, the problem is I have it written in my notes, but I didn't write the verse that it's in. And so I'm going to be awkwardly looking for where it's at. So bear with me here. Uh, where does he say, uh, what shall we say to my Lord? What words can we bring? Does anybody see that? 16. 16. Thank you, Carol. You saved me right in the middle. In verse 16, notice what he does. What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? What, what, how would you describe what Judah's doing right there? What can I say? What words could possibly make it right? How can I clear myself? Or how can we clear ourselves? What's he acknowledging? They did something wrong and what can't fix it? Words can't fix it. Words cannot fix it. What can we say? What possible thing could we you know, give you with our mouths that would make this right. Uh, yet, I want to make it right. I want to clear myself, he says. He's implying he knows it's going to take more than words. It's going to take actions. It's going to take, in fact, very costly actions for him to clear himself and to clear Benjamin and to make it right between him and Joseph. Now, in the background here, of course, there's this thing that we know and we know that he knows, but he doesn't know that Joseph knows because he doesn't know he's Joseph yet. Like he's got in the background not just the offense that Benjamin has just committed, but he's got in his mind his own offense and the offense of his brothers all those years ago against Joseph. In fact, he later says, I mean right there actually, the next verse, he says, God has found out the guilt. Did you see that? God has found out our guilt. Now, I, I don't think he's just talking about the silver cup, although he is talking about the silver cup. I think Judah is a man who's got a very 
pricked conscience. Uh, we've been seeing that lately. Uh, ever since that thing that he had with Tamar, remember the story where his, his daughter-in-law and him had this, I don't have time to go into it if you don't remember, the trickeration and all the, the things that went on between them. Ever since then, he was a humbled man who seems to have a very sensitive conscience. And in this situation, he's right back where he had been years ago. He has an opportunity to profit himself by casting his little brother aside or foregoing his profit to lift his little brother up. Back then, he chose the former. He chose to lift himself up and throw his brother under the bus. His words were, we should just sell him. That way we can at least make a profit on the little jerk. That was basically his words. That's a loose translation of the Hebrew. That was a joke. Right? Yes, of course. But only slightly loose. I mean, he was not very kind towards his brother. And here, notice what he says. God found out our guilt. Words alone won't do it. I'm ready for action. Tell me what action I can do to save my brother. Here's a lesson for reconciliation between people and really between God and us as well. Reconciliation requires repentance. As we saw last week, repentance is more than what you see on the surface. It's like an iceberg. There's more to repentance underneath in the heart than shows. And yet, what shows, the part of repentance that shows, proves there's something underneath. Right? You see how that works? Uh, you can't have the part above without the part underneath, but if you don't have the part above, it shows you don't have anything underneath. Um, repentance is proven by actions. Proven by actions, not merely words. When you're going to make reconciliation and restore trust with somebody, you can't act like, and I can't act like, just simply saying sorry and giving a whole bunch of reasons why I did it or excuses is going to make it right. And we all know this because we know when we're offended, it doesn't make it right when somebody comes to us with words. Normally, when that happens, we think something like this. That's lame. That's a lame way to come. I mean, you, you've just done such a huge thing to me, and you come with words? Why am I supposed to believe you? Actions are required. And the responsibility of those actions rests on the offender. Not on the offended party, on the offender. Judah is ready to be that man. To be that man of action. To bring reconciliatory actions to, to Joseph. He doesn't know he's Joseph yet, but to this man. So as to make up for what he did by defending his new little brother, Benjamin, where he did not defend his old little brother, Joseph. Remember, they think Joseph is probably dead, or at least long gone. They have no idea what's about to come, which is why they are majorly distressed when Joseph reveals himself to them. Make sense? Repentance is demonstrated by outward actions, not merely words. And when reconciliation is to happen, the test is, what actions are you willing to take? You say, what kind of actions are needed? Well, it depends. Always depends on the situation. But here's the principle. The actions that are required are those that reestablish your trustworthiness in the eyes of the one you've offended. Make sense? 
Your job as the offender is to try to restore your trustworthiness in their eyes. And of course, that's going to vary. I can't give you a formula for what kind of action it takes. It's just, you got to talk to them. And you got to walk with them and work with them through that whole process like he does here. He says, what can I say? Tell me what I can do. How can I clear myself, clear ourselves? Because God has found out our guilt. Make sense? Any thoughts about that first little section there, verses 1 through 17, before we move on to the second section? Seeing none, we'll move on. The substitution. Uh, Verses 18 to 34. That's okay if you don't have any. No, you're good. Uh, Verses 18 to 34, you have a substitution that is offered. Uh, This is the way that Judah responds to Joseph's test. Um, So so Judah, uh, well, first of all, let's back up for a minute. Judah has said, what do I need to do to clear ourselves? What does Joseph say? Verse 17. What does he say? Yes. So Joseph is doing what there? He's sticking to his guns. He's refusing to accept any kind of substitute for Benjamin. He's he's refusing to let Benjamin off the hook by accepting Judah's good brotherliness. I got a question. Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah, I think it was probably an Egyptian thing, you know, kind of like um, reading tea leaves. You know, you have a cup and you read the, how the leaves fall on the bottom of the cup. That's right. That's probably something like that. Mm-hmm. Other than... That's right. Yep. Yeah. I think we should assume he did not do that, yeah, that he didn't actually practice divination, but but this is part of his act as a as an Egyptian man, you know. Exactly, yeah. I think that's exactly right. Now, and whether they used tea leaves or wine dregs or I don't know what all they did, but those types of practices were always very common in all ancient cultures to use the innards of animals and tea leaves and the dregs at the bottom of wine to read the shapes. Um, you can read about that in all kinds of ancient literature, you know, for sure. But in terms of silver cup in particular, I don't know the significance of silver cup. Other than it would have, he was trying clearly to make his, it's worth a lot, yeah. He was trying also clearly to make his brothers more afraid. I think by using the divination card, he uses it twice. It makes it more scary for them. Because this is something that's not, they don't practice either. Uh, or they know they're not supposed to. And yet to hear this very powerful Egyptian man say, basically, I'm a, I'm a sorcerer. And you just stole my main sorcery item. That's like, whoa, okay. We're not only messing with Pharaoh's guy, we're messing with... Like Jeanette said, he could be a, a sorcerer because he's an Egyptian. They think that he's an Egyptian. He knows that he's a Hebrew. Yeah. He knows that he's a Hebrew. He knows he gets everything from God anyway through prayer. Yes. 
It's correct, yes. But they, they don't know that yet. And so, yeah, they think this guy could also be a sorcerer. Oh, my goodness, what have we done? And obviously he knew that we stole the cup, and he told them that he knew that by divination. And so, yeah, I think that Joseph's just tightening the screws with that act, you know. And he refuses to take a substitute, which is also tightening the screws, right? Saying basically, no, I'm not going to accept anything. He makes them march back to the city and deal with him face to face. And then notice in verses 18 to 34 what Judah does. Judah does something that's profound. In the whole Bible, this is profound. He offers himself as a substitute for someone else. And he does that in two ways, okay? This is important, and I want you to notice both ways, because they're also the opposite of what he had done years ago with Joseph. First step of offering himself as a substitute is he accurately presents the facts of the case. He does not, he tells it back to Joseph. There's a long section there. You probably got kind of bored or lost in the reading because there's this long section where he's just telling him blow by blow what just happened, as if Joseph doesn't know. But why is he doing that? Because he wants Joseph to know that he is willing to honestly accept what's going on. Right? He tells the facts as it is. He's not seeking to color them in his own favor. He's not seeking to cover Benjamin by lying for Benjamin. He's simply laying out as it happened from his perspective. Now think back to that day in the wilderness when little Joseph tramped up to them to check on them. At that time, how did Judah and the other brothers handle the facts of the situation about Joseph? completely made it up. They replaced the true story with an absolute fabrication. Remember, they took the little multicolored coat, they dipped it in goat's blood, and, and just brought it back to Jacob dramatically. This is what we found, they said. A complete lie and a complete fabrication. They then tried to cover their sin by lying about it. That's one strategy. But it's not the biblical strategy of substitution. The biblical strategy of substitution is first tell the truth about it. Every bit of the truth. Even the smallest seeming insignificant details own it. And then seek to cover it by substituting something for it. Which is what he does secondly. He offers himself in the place of Benjamin for his father's sake. Now, I want to read this with you again, or maybe have one of you read it, because it is tremendously beautiful. Uh, look there at verse 32 through 34 of chapter 44, and someone read those verses for us again out loud. Thank you, Corey. Think about it. Look at, look at what he's saying again. Let me stay instead. That's substitution. Me in place of my brother. Let him go back. And the ultimate reason why is I don't want my father to be heartbroken. All right? How is that different 
than Judah years ago when he was with little Joseph, little Joey, out in the, well, in the desert. Com- again, complete opposite. Back then, what did he say? Already reminded you of it. Let's just sell him. To kill him, we make no money. To sell him, we make some money, and we can get away with it, right? At the same time. Wow, what a deal. Back then, Judah didn't think about Joseph, and Judah did not think about his father, Jacob. Here, all Judah thinks about is Benjamin and his father, Jacob. You know who he doesn't think very much about? Judah. A selfless, self-sacrificial substitute is what he is offering. He tells the truth about what has happened, and instead of trying to shirk his responsibility, he takes on more than his fair share in order to let Benjamin go free so that his father can receive him back to him. Obviously, you see some echoes of Jesus in this, right? And I'll tie all those things up at the end, but you can already see it. How Jesus came into the world in the same way that Judah acts towards Benjamin. But in terms of a lesson for reconciliation, it's pretty obvious as well, right? Not only do you have to work hard as the offending party to reestablish your trust in the eyes of the offended, but you also have to work sacrificially. You have to be willing for it to hurt. You have to be willing, be willing to do costly things, even things that are completely self-denying. When reconciliation happens between people who are fighting, whether it's one has offended the other or both have just mutually offended, which happens a lot too, everybody involved has to learn how to act in the interest of the other and not just in their own interests. Everyone involved has to learn how to think about the Father and not just themselves. Uh, or else reconciliation will always fall apart. Now let's hurry on to the last thing, and then I want to tie up some loose ends at the end. There's a restoration that Joseph is responsible for and that he delivers. So the offending party, the one that made the offense, has to do the rebuilding of trust, has to do the self-sacrificial substitution But now the offended party just does something as well. And you'll look there in verses 1 to 15 of chapter 45. Joseph brings forgiveness and kindness to his brothers uh, when he could have easily chosen harshness and rejection. There's a verse in the Bible that says, A kind word turns away wrath. A kind word turns away wrath. Uh, A little sugar sweetens a lot of sour. And that's what we see Joseph doing. Uh, He reveals himself to his brothers. And how do do his brothers respond? Dumbfounded Dumbfounded is a good word. Dismayed. Don't know what to say. Uh, Sure. Yeah, I think so. And in fact, you know, as, as yeah. Going back, you know, uh, saying about him, uh, really it's to the father. Mm-hmm. Basically, we don't bring back uh, Benjamin. Our father will die. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, notice in verse 1 how Joseph responds. I mean, it was to that direct thing that it says Joseph could no longer control himself. I mean, 
It drove Joseph to weeping to hear Judah talk in such a different way. This is a different Judah than the one he had last encountered. And so the word there for dismay or dumbfounded, the word of Bahal in Hebrew, um, it actually is used, it's a very strong word for fear. It's not the normal word for fear. It's more like they were mortified, terrified, absolutely just kind of like when you're frozen, you're so scared, you can't even move, paralyzed. That's what it uses there, very strong. Um, and you can imagine why. Now, get in the mind of the brothers. After they were unparalyzed, what do you think they thought might come next? <sighs> I'm going to die. Here it comes. You know, revenge is not good. We're on the chopping block. We're finally going to have to pay. And yet, what did they receive? The sugar. The kind word. I mean, look at what Joseph says. Verse 4. Come near to me, please. Now, had Judah not stepped up and done the whole, I'm going to be trustworthy and substitute myself, would this have been possible? thought about that a little bit this week. Would it have been possible for Joseph to say, come near to me, please? No, of course. Uh, Judah and the brothers had to have done what they did in order for this meeting to be possible. Uh, when they got, uh, got stopped and arrested for the silver cup, had they just said, hey, take Benjamin, this would have never happened, right? Uh, had they just decided, let's all run and be fugitives, this would have never happened. But because they were willing to make amends for their past actions, it opened the door for the offended person to be able to say, come near to me. And so there you have the two sides of a reconciliation. The, offended, the offending party willing to restore trust and the offended party ready when that they're willing to receive them with kindness. He makes it clear that he's already forgiven them. How does he make it clear that he's already made the decision to forgive them? I think you can see it in verse 5. I mean, is, is verse 5 not one of the most remarkable things you've ever heard? Yeah, he's, he, yeah don't beat yourself up is literally what he says. I mean, would any of us say that? It, it's hard to think about. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Yeah. And he had the he had the cup in his sack. And then they all packed up and went back to That's right. Sack. Yeah. So in in, in in being Joseph, he is saying, you know, they care for Benjamin. They do. They they've been changed. They're ready to restore trust. You know, yeah. They said, okay, go ahead and take them. That's right. Yeah. But in the meantime, Joseph found out that they really did care for his father. Precisely. Precisely. Which is why he's able to say, don't beat yourself up. 
I've already decided about my situation that it wasn't you who ultimately held my life in your hands anyway. Of course, there's a ton of, there's a huge key to forgiveness and reconciliation in Joseph's theology here. And I hope you realize his theology is more than just head understanding, it's heart understanding. God, he says it two or three times God sent me, God has made me what I am. He doesn't let the sins of other people against him define him. He looks higher than it. He looks higher than them and higher than what they do, and he, he lets God define him. He, and you can tell he's been doing this for years. And it probably came at high cost. He probably struggled a lot to, to get up to this point. We're not told all the details, but I'm sure he struggled to do this. And yet, because he did it by God's grace, here he's able to say, I've already forgiven you. Let's let bygones be bygones come near to me. Let's make a relationship again together. In fact, he says, bring, your da- bring dad back and I'll settle you and I'll provide for you for the rest of your life. Restoration. Which is what they actually do. They go back and get their dad. We'll, we'll see this a little bit in, in next week. And Joseph takes them to some of the best land of Egypt. He gets Pharaoh's permission. They settle there. And it's there that they multiply over the next 400 years into becoming the nation that God snatches out of slavery in Egypt. All of it kind of hinged on this. That Joseph, instead of a harsh word for his brothers, came with a kind word. He came with sugar. But the sugar was in his heart only because he had soaked his heart in the character of God. He knew that though we sin and though, the, and though people sin against us, both of those things happen to everybody. We sin, people sin against us. He knew because, even though that's true, God is still sovereign. And God is, this is critical, God is still good. My life is in his hands. My life is not in anybody else's hands. My life is not even in my own hands. God sent me. God made me. Therefore, I'm willing to receive an enemy kindly. That's what Jesus says. He says, look, do you love people who love you back? Jesus says, good job. Everybody does that. You're not like God at all. Everybody does that. Hitler loved his dog. Right? Everybody loves people who love them back. Jesus says, here's the test. If you want to really be like the Father in heaven, here's what you should do. Love your enemy. We hear that, and justifiably, we kind of are taken back by that. Like, love our enemy? Yes, Jesus says, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who persecute you. Feed your enemy and clothe them and give them good things to drink. How in the world can anybody do that? Life of Joseph shows you. Instead of letting yourself be defined by the actions of others and by your own actions, let yourself be defined by who he is and by the fact that he holds your life in his hands. Now, there are echoes of Jesus in this story, which I don't want to forget. Because if you look down, this is where we'll close as the kids come in. 
if you look down again through the outline that I gave you, the tests, the substitution, and the restoration, each one of those gives us an echo of Jesus. It gives us an example of what Jesus did for us. The Bible says we all have failed the loyalty test before God, every one of us. Jesus came into the world and he passed it. Not just to set an example for us, but in our place. Jesus is also the better Judah. He was the older brother who joined the human family so that he could stand up for us and say, don't take them, take me. And take me not just for my own sake or not just for their sake, but because my Father in heaven has chosen them and loves them and wants them back in his family and household. And so Jesus gave up his life on the cross. But you know Jesus is also like Joseph at the end. Because he was God and man together. Do you, you see that? Like, since this is the cool thing about the gospel. Jesus was God and man in one person. Therefore, he was both sides of the reconciliation equation within himself. As man, he offered up his manhood to God as a sacrifice of atonement and as a uh, human who was able to pass the test for us of loyalty. And as God, he was able to receive us with sweetness and kindness rather than with harshness and rejection for our sins. Maybe like no other story, the story of Joseph illustrates Jesus. Uh, we said it way back at the beginning of when we started Joseph's story that, think about it, you know, just like Joseph, Jesus um, went into Egypt as a child, had to be brought back into the promised land. Jesus went down into the depths of the prison of sin and misery. But when it was all said and done, Jesus was seated at the right hand, not of Pharaoh, but of God. So that from there he could gather us and say, please come near. Let me settle you in the land. Let me feed you for the rest of your life. Better yet, let me feed you forever. Right? Isn't that good? All right.